Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 472 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. If you have ever wondered about the future of giving and crypto and fintech, financial technology, and how to unleash generosity in the future, uh, well, I think you're really going to enjoy it. This episode is part of our future series, our little mini series, looking into the future and what's ahead for leaders. It's brought to you by World Vision. You can join World Vision, David Kinneman, Danielle Strickland, and others on February 15th for a webinar discussing brand new research on the state of pastoral health by going to worldvision.org slash carrypod and by leader, the premier people development software. You can use the promo code carry to get 20% off your first year of their people development software. That's leadr.com. So uh, I got to know Vance Rausch a couple of years ago uh, through the introduction of mutual friends, as we'll talk about. And his idea, this is full disclosure here, fascinated me so much. I became an early investor in his company. So that's just full disclosure. I'm not telling you to invest in his company. And even though we discuss crypto, uh, this episode is not giving financial advice. We are simply trying to look into the future and when I met Vance a couple of years ago, I was really taken by his intelligence, his drive, all of those things, and loved the idea of the company that he ended up creating, which is Overflow.co. He is the founder and CEO of Overflow and a pastor, we'll talk about that, at Vive Church. Overflow is the premier platform that serves churches, nonprofits, and corporations by enabling them to accept crypto and stock donations from their donors in a seamless and scalable way. 90% of wealth in America is held in non-cash assets, but most churches, nonprofits, and corporate social impact teams can only fundraise for cash. In other words, ACH, debit, credit. Overflow is helping unlock net new channels for generosity. Vive is a Silicon Valley-based church with 10 locations around the world. And yeah, somehow Vance is in, involved in all of that. And he's got four kids under the age of six. So it's one of those things where I'm like, how do you do this all? And I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. So I know there's lots of mixed feelings about the metaverse. There's lots of feelings about uh, crypto, etc. So again, this is not an advice-giving episode. I'm not telling you what to do. We are just trying to describe the world that is emerging and how you can thrive in life and leadership in the midst of it. So I uh, would love your reaction and response to what Vance has to say. I found it very inspiring. And yeah, things are changing quickly. So I want to thank our partners. Uh, thank you, World Vision and Leader, for making this episode available to you absolutely free. And we hope you'll check out what they have this year. World Vision asked pastors across America how they are doing and the results of the study. Well, they're kind of sobering. But uh, World Vision also found pockets of hope that they hope will encourage and empower you into this next season. To that end, join World Vision, David Kinneman, the president of Barna, Danielle Strickland, and others on February 15th for a webinar discussing brand new research on the state of pastoral health and exploring a vision for ministry beyond the pandemic. And don't we all want to get there? Together, we can shepherd the church through this present moment and live with expectant hope. You can register by going to worldvision.org slash carrypod. That's worldvision.org slash C-A-R-E-Y-P-O-D. 
And we talked about it a lot here. Did the great resignation take a toll on your team? The data is telling us that 50% of people either already have or will be leaving their jobs for another job in the next 12 months. What? Why? Because they're looking for a workplace where they can be engaged and grow every day. And that is what leader the first people development software helps you do. Engage and grow every person on your team every day. Leader is saying goodbye to the great resignation and asking you to join them in the great resolution, making the care and development of your people so important, the number one priority in 2022. Harvard Business Review tells us that 70% of the reason a person leaves their job is because of their relationship with their manager, and Leader helps managers lead better through effective one-on-one meetings that drive outcomes and help each employee feel cared for and developed. So, If you're interested in transforming your one-on-one meetings, uh, Leader will help you. Lead effective one-on-one meetings, develop leaders at every level, and engage and grow every person on your team. 500 churches and businesses are already using Leader for effective meetings, and they also have core HR and health plans to help you care better for your team. You can request your demo today. Go to leader.com. That's L-E-A-D-R, no E, L-E-A-D-R.com. And use the promo code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to get 20% off your first year of their people development software. That's leader.com, no E-L-E-A-D-R.com. Use the promo code CAREY, you'll get 20% off. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Vance Rausch. Vance, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you. Thanks, Carrie. Um, I'm super excited for our conversation. Yeah, so we got to know each other. I think Mutual Friend introduced us. That's right. And uh, you're you're a young leader, like a lot of the people listening to this podcast. If I can ask you, how old are you right now? 32. 32. Okay. So fairly young startup founder, which we're going to talk about in the space of stock donation, fintech. We're going to talk a little bit of crypto today. Uh, but right out of college, I think it was 2011, you started at Google. What did you learn as a Googler and what did you do there? I learned a lot as a Googler. I was there for just under two years. So it was a pretty quick stint, but an incredible uh, start to my career. So the the two main things that I took away from Google is one, the importance of automation. They are maniacal at Google. This was was a a culture point, actually. Automate Mm -hmm. yourself out of a job. (laughs) <laughs> really? Okay, well, yeah. let's let's drill down on that. When you say automation, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people think about robots, but that's not what you're talking about, is it? Are you talking about systems? Like what, what are systems. you automating? Yeah. yeah, so any workflows that you're doing manually that you're repeating daily, you should not be doing that, right? Uh, you should be writing a script. They would actually uh, encourage people like me that were on the ops and business side to learn coding, to learn Python specifically so that you can create scripts to automate your work. They wanted you to literally automate yourself out of a job. And so that was one really interesting thing within the culture of Google that I thought was really unique. Um, I remember you know, running this special ops project where it required some manual investigation. I was on the fraud, spam, and abuse team at Google. Okay. And there was a lot of things that our system was missing. And so I created this project where we would go do deep dives into certain uh, fraudulent ads that were missed and actually do big research projects on it. When I presented this project to the engineering team, the head of machine learning for our department 
got so frustrated, he walked out of the meeting because there was so much manual, uh, you know, um, processes connected to the way I was approaching the work. And at the time, I didn't really understand. I was like, man, is he just having a bad day? (laughs) Uh, But I started to realize over time that this was a core value within the company. So back in 2011, that was very much at the forefront of Google. So you're like 21, straight out yeah. of college. That's right. What, what had you studied? Was it business, engineering? What, what, what yeah. was your course of study? I studied uh, marketing and information systems at the University of Washington, go dogs. And, <laughs> you know, from there got recruited to Google. So automation was a big thing. Another big thing I learned from Google that has carried with me today is autonomy. Mm. So they really empowered people. They didn't micromanage They would ramp you up, train you, give you a very clear goal and trust that you'll figure it out. And Google is famous for things like 20% time, which was basically, hey, 80% do your core work, 20% do anything that you want that you think is going to increase the value uh, of Google's product. And then they would have 1% projects donate your time to anything that you want. They were very empowering in that way. And I thought that was really cool. Well, there's so much right there. And I know we're going to talk a lot about a lot of things today, Vance. But like, you know, first of all, when you're describing that project, all I'm thinking about is, wait a minute, you're like barely out of college, 20, 21 <laughs> years old, and they're giving you this like fixed spam and abuse on the internet. Like that is your goal. Like that, 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 most leaders listening to this, including leaders my age, younger leaders would say, I'm not trusting a 21-year-old with that. But they did. What? Right. What? What, why do you think they trust young leaders? I think a lot has to do with their recruiting process. They have a very, very rigorous recruiting process. I had like 12 interviews, right, wow. um, across two days. And they were pretty intense. They would ask market sizing questions, problem solving questions. I was on the ops and business side. They were asking me coding questions, <laughs> right? And so... Mm-hmm. I do think that they trust their recruiting process so much that if you are in, then they pretty much empower you to figure it out because you've passed some sort of bar or criteria to make them believe that you're able to figure it out. So you don't know coding. I still do not code. I have a son (laughs) who codes. How did you figure it out? Yeah. So Google, you know, at the time I joined, you know, they were around 10,000 people already, a lot of resources. So their leadership and development programming was pretty built out. So really it was unlimited in terms of the resources that you had to learn uh, what you were interested in or what they encouraged you in. And so the creator of Python literally was at Google as a dedicated resource to teach you the language that he created, <laughs> right? That's the type of... And is that kinda, a code language? Forgive my ignorance. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Okay. It's, a, it's a code language, you know, historically used for a lot of automation scripts and things like that. And so the creator of that code language literally is the person teaching me how to use his language, right? And so those are the type of unfair resources and advantages that Google had for their employees, which looking back at it was brilliant. And I'm sure for the rest of us, there's YouTube and, and there's books you can buy and uh, the internet, which does help. Now that. there is. Okay. That's right. You know, one of the questions, Vance, I try not to ask on every episode because I could ask it on every episode, but I mm-hmm. had it begged 
to ask you was how do you get it all done? So you're 32 years old. You've been in leadership for a decade, like out of school. You've got four kids under the age of six. (laughs) You work at a church and then you actually started Overflow as a company, I don't know, on the side as a main thing. And like you you were just crushing it. But I'm going to ask it now because number one, I want to know. But number two, it's got to have something to do with automation, doesn't it? Uh, or not? I, no, no. I, 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 would, I might be wrong on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I would actually say it's a it's a lot more about people. I have this mantra, you know. Um, I, I learned at a conference several years back that has just stuck with me. Life travels at the speed of relationship. Mm. And what I learned is mm. my capacity and my ability to move quickly is fully dependent on the people around me. And I, I've learned that over the past decade, that if I can surround myself with the right people, the right team, create an environment where they feel like they're empowered, they have all the tools that they need to be able to accomplish the objective or the goal, shared goal that we have together, um, that really multiplies my impact, right? And at that point, if I can gather that group of people, my job becomes unblocking them and supporting them. If I can do that really, really well, uh, then then ultimately I can spin all these proverbial plates, right? But without that, you know, without a, a stellar team at our church, without the stellar team that we've organized at Overflow, without my wife, <laughs> yeah. who has been yeah. just you know my partner in everything from family to church to business, you know, I wouldn't be able to. I'm a, I'm really a product of the people around me. Right. Okay. Well, that that is a great answer. I love that answer. And we might double click on that one uh, later in the interview. Anything else on automation though? Because that one really hit me. And I mean, I've read the four hour work week, like millions mm. of other people. That book is a lot about um, automation and what can you automate. And I think there is an inefficiency in a lot of us as leaders who end up doing the same thing over and over again every day that we could simply automate. Can you give us just a couple of tangible examples of things that you've automated either then at Google in your life or that you've continued to automate so that you can focus on other things? Yeah, so the specific thing that we were working on at Google was there was you know ads, accounts, landing pages that were constantly trying to infiltrate the advertising system at Google, literally trying to show themselves on AdWords, counterfeit goods, drugs, pharmaceuticals that were uncertified, things of that nature. And so, you know, there's two extreme ways that you can try to shield against that. You can literally have every single ad go through a human review process, or you can build an algorithm to try to detect automatically what might be fraudulent and what might not be fraudulent. And so Google did a mixture of both of those strategies, um, leaning towards, you know, trying to make as much of it algorithmic as possible. So 95% of bad ads were actually caught by our automated systems. The other 5% that were suspect were under human review. But what was interesting was that the sites that were under human review that got categorized and tagged were fed back into the machine learning model so that the algorithm got smarter over time, if that makes sense. 
And so it's actually a, a good analogy because I think when people think about automating workflows, everybody's obsessed with, you know, optimizing their productivity. They search for systems that require them or that enable them to set it and forget it. And what right. happens is that when you, when you set something and forget something, all of a sudden the intentionality is removed from that thing. And just because it, it's automated doesn't mean it's better. <laughs> right. Um, if you, for example, set and forget relationship building and you write a, you write a bot, let's say, um, I have a, I have a script to email or text carry every once, once a month. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and I get the same text from you. Yeah, every month. Exactly. If I'm not, if I'm not actually tuning that, if I'm not actually personalizing that, if I'm not giving any intentionality to that, you know, it's going to become white noise for you, right? Yeah. And so it's actually not going to achieve, the automation doesn't always achieve the objective. And mm -hmm. so you just got to be really careful about that. Yeah, so follow the breadcrumbs to where you are in overflow today. So after Google, you did what? Yeah, so after Google, I got recruited to lead product at a growth stage startup called Adara. So we build the world's largest travel graph. So wow. we, yeah, yeah, we, we worked with Marriott, United, Delta, and we essentially stitched together, um, a traveler's profile. We knew, you know, historically hotels you booked, flights you booked so that as you browsed and planned trips, we could personalize your experience across the web. So we would work with Airbnb, Disney, a lot of the biggest travel and tourism brands in the world to try to serve travelers in the best way that we could. And so I, I came in at about 2 million in revenue at that company and was part of a team. And we scaled it to over a hundred million in gross revenue in a few years. And Google was cool. But when I got a taste of what a fast growth tech startup is like, I was like, this is where it's at. I, I, I could, I could do this. Yeah. So after that, was it direct to overflow or what happened after that? So simultaneous to that, uh, my wife and I co-founded a church with an Australian couple. Because as we yeah. know, Carrie, the, the Bible is a lot better in an Aussie accent, right? And <laughs> it so, is, it is. It is. <laughs> so we met this Australian couple on Twitter, actually. And they were looking to, to launch a church. They were in Newcastle, Australia at the time, but they felt called from God to plant a church in the Silicon Valley. And they found us on Twitter. We connected, they flew over and we just hit it off. This was nine years ago. We just hit it off. I toured them around Google. I was at Google at the time and toured them around Stanford. We end up at a Thai lunch spot together and they start pitching this vision for this modern expression of church uh, that would reach millennials in the Bay Area. And I was just eating pad thai, listening to their vision. <laughs> um, and after their 10-minute vision pitch, Pastor Adam, my pastor now, says, start it with us. And, you know, based off pure naivety, Carrie, my wife and I said yes. Because <laughs> 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 we didn't even know, know what that meant. So literally, um, a couple months later, they moved. They got a house uh, in San Jose, California. And then over the next year, we started the church planting process with them. And so kind of while I was at Adara, we were just in the first couple of years of church planting Vive Church, the, the church yeah. we're con continuing to build now. Yeah. And Vive Church is, if I read it right, is it 10 locations now globally? 
That's right. So we have five that, in. Yeah, yeah. That grew. Go ahead. It grew. It grew. This past decade, uh, God has been moving through our church, uh, and it's been it's been a, a huge blessing. So five locations in the San Francisco Bay Area, five locations outside of the Bay Area. So Chicago, Austin, Honolulu, and then two in Italy, Milan and Rome. Wow. That's incredible. And yeah. what's your role at the church? So historically, uh, I've operated functionally as CFO, right? Um, and amidst all the technology, you know, projects and companies I've been a part of, I've held that role of CFO. In the past year, I've transitioned from that with just the demands of, of overflow now um, to another incredible uh, CFO that came from a career at Intel. And I sit now on the board as treasurer of our church and also still serving as a pastor. And also still serving as a pastor. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you go from Madara. Uh, tell us about the origins of Overflow. Yeah. So, you know, fast forward to, to 2019, the church is growing 4,000 members, 10 locations. And what I would characterize is a disproportionately generous community. This is something that had really captivated Kim and I since the beginning of our marriage, this concept of generosity. My life verse is Proverbs eleven twenty four. The world of the generous gets larger and larger, right? The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. And I saw this expression within the Vive community in a really profound way. Over the last nine years, I saw people I do life with collectively give tens of millions of dollars away to build the church and also to give back to nonprofit organizations that we were passionate about and partnering with to serve the cities that we were located in. And so this theme was going on in the last decade of my life, but then something happened that was really interesting in 2019. I had about a dozen people in our congregation come up to me because they know me as CFO, now treasurer on the board. They would say, hey Vance, how do I donate some of my Facebook, Google, Apple stock to Vive? And at the time, Carrie, I didn't no, but I knew that Facebook stock is valuable. So I should figure yeah, this yeah. out. <laughs> and so I went to Fidelity to open up our brokerage account. By the way, that wasn't super seamless. It took me about three weeks, but got it done. Mm -hmm. And then I got an account number as well as some instructions from Fidelity to give back to our church members. So I sent that over to about a dozen people that had requested for this. And then I waited eagerly, right? <laughs> and I didn't see anything come through the account. And I'm like, what's going on? I was a little bit frustrated because selfishly, I, I spent some time to open up this account and nothing was coming through. And so I went to one of my buddies and I said, hey, you mentioned that you wanted to donate some of your Facebook stock. This is kind of an awkward conversation, but I just haven't seen anything come through. Do you have all the information that you need? <laughs> and then he said, hey, Vance, I'm going to do it. It's just that I gave your information to my Charles Schwab broker and they said to download this form, to physically fill it out and to fax it in. I just haven't had a chance to do it, but I'll get it done before the end of the year because I want and the fax it in. Yeah, yeah. This is in 2019. Send <laughs> exact, me a fax. Exactly, okay. Carrie. And that, that was honestly my epiphany moment. I was like, okay, that's right. If you tell a millennial to fax in anything, it's definitely not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Who has a fax machine? I mean, my goodness. I'm not a millennial. I do not know how to fax things. Yeah. Well, I don't have a machine. Case, yeah. case, case in point, right? So 
you know, what, what, you know, spirit of God, I believe was really speaking to me is, Hey, if the only thing standing in the way of this donation, this gift, right? This contribution is a little bit of friction. What if we remove that friction? Probably what would happen is we would unlock unprecedented amounts of generosity. That was a hypothesis, you know, October, 2019. So all of October, I built a prototype, you know, uh, shout out to my Google days, learning a little bit about technology, right? Mm-hmm. And I emailed, you know, a thousand active recurring donors. And I said, Hey, if you ever thought about donating stock before, or you want to do so because it's a very tax efficient way to give, you can do so now completely online through this online platform called Overflow. And I emailed that out. Across the next three days, 32 people responded to that email and we raised $1.1 million in stocks in three days. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> hey, I got I to gotta tell you, and I know you and I have talked about this, but yeah. when I was still lead pastor, this is probably seven years ago now, eight years ago, I remember there's one guy at our church, he and his wife, very generous, sold their business and wow. they wanted to give us a, uh, a donation in stock. Okay. And I remember... And Canadian regulations are a bit different than the U.S., but it took us probably the better part of a year to transact that. And there was so much red tape. There was so much red tape. It was like, it was hard for us to receive. You know, if somebody gives you a $100 bill, that's great. And this was pushing six figures uh, worth of a stock donation. So it was a very generous gift. And I just remember it being so difficult. So that's why when a mutual friend, was it Mike Arietta who introduced us? I think it was. Uh, no, it probably no? was a combination of him and Brad Lominick. And Brad Lominick, yeah, it was. It was yeah. Lominick and and Mike Arietta. That's right. And yeah. uh, I'm so glad we've met. But I'm like, when I saw that idea, that's where I'm like, I'm all over this because the pain point was so high. Yes. And um, so pick up the story from there because I think a lot of leaders who run churches, not for profits, can relate to that. Um, where did it go from there? So you develop really overflow at the beginning was an internal solution for Vive Church yeah, just to help facilitate. And you built what, just a web app or something like that? Exactly. To facilitate it? It was was literally a simple website, right? That I, that I built and it was just kind of workflow automation in in the back end. And I want to go into that, but quickly to your point with that specific example that you experienced, you know, what's interesting is, you know, that person that ended up giving a seven figure gift, Right. Um, to persevere for a year. I know. Uh, to, to complete that gift. It's interesting because that gift starts to become a burden, mm-hmm. right? Even though it's an incredibly generous gift. And so the opportunity is not just in making that gift a lot more seamless. The opportunity is encouraging that gift to happen again in the future. Right. Exactly. You know, I figured by the time it was done, I think my successor actually, it, like it did take a year. And uh, I, I remember just correct. It wasn't seven, it was six, but not a big deal. Either regardless yeah. of the amount, yeah. it's still it's a huge amount of money. Yeah. But I thought by the time it was done, when you tally up my time, the finance department's time, yes. their time, my successor's time, we almost <laughs> paid for the gift in labor. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and you're right. A lot of people would have given up. And there's probably so many people who are like, I would like to donate something. And, you know, I hadn't thought about this until just now, but even when in the early days of starting out in the really small churches, there was a a sweet old lady who died and left us $100,000 in stock. And that took another, like, 
months and months and months to untangle and transfer. Wow. So, you know, that was in the early days when the church had no money. But yeah, yeah you're right. It, it, and when you, there have been so many times where I have sat somewhere and said, I want to give to this, but I don't know how, and I don't carry cash. And, you know, there's no easy way to give. So eventually you kind of lose the moment. You just move on because you have your regular That's giving it. and that kind of thing. All right. That's so it. pick up the narrative. All right. You developed yeah. an internal web app. Yeah. So I was solving my own problem, right? I was the customer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got this realization because, you know, I'm a, I'm a tech guy as well, uh, alongside being a pastor and I'm entrepreneurial. So I got this thought. I was like, hey, this is a sample set of one, but to, to really, you know, maximize the impact of what we created here, I wonder if other churches, nonprofits, universities uh, would want this, right? So I just started texting people, Carrie, just pastor friends that I had, people that I knew that were running nonprofits. And I said, hey, this is what we did for Vive. Would you want this? Do you need it? Would you pay for it? Because in my mind, if we can create a sustainable business model, then we can really actually seriously scale this thing and serve many, many more people. Mm -hmm. And so it was pretty overwhelming, the responses. Everybody was like, yes, yes, yes. I want it. I need it. I would pay for it. And so that was enough conviction for me to go to Sand Hill Road, to go to San Francisco. I'm blessed. I'm in a area where there is people that are willing to take flyers on ideas like this and put some money uh, behind supporting and, and scaling ideas because they've seen it have world-changing impact, right? And so I, I, I went on the road and I started pitching it. To be honest, you know, the first 50 pitches went terribly. You know, it was. So can can I just interrupt yeah. for a second for leaders who haven't been to Silicon Valley? <laughs> Sand Hill Road is where all the VCs are. Is that right? Yes. That's right. Greylock that's Partners right. are there. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where uh, Reed Reed Hastings hangs out, and yes, uh, that's where all the money is. And that's right. So you start pitching, and first fifty did not go well. First fifty, okay, yeah. leaders, take note. First 50 did not go well. Most of us quit after two. It's like, well, I tried that bad idea. I guess it doesn't work, right? First 50 did not go well. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was a glutton for for punishment for sure. 50 rejections straight up. And I was actually getting pretty discouraged. Anybody would, right? Getting pretty discouraged. And I saw this tweet, you know, uh, I call Twitter now the holy dub. I met my pastors through it. You know, I... Uh, <laughs> I got this tweet in, in a very discouraging time in my life that said, rejection is my insight. And I thought, oh. you know, yeah, you know what? Okay, cool. I, I had 50 rejections, but I also had 50 op opportunities to, to learn something about my business, about my product, about my idea, right? And so I just chose to flip my perspective a little bit and in conjunction with that, I really did hear the Spirit of God tell me, stop trying to convince them, teach them. So mm. transparently, Carrie, the way that I was approaching these venture capitalist meetings was trying to uh, reconfigure myself to how I thought they wanted to hear my idea and they wanted to see me. So I really downplayed me being a pastor because I thought that would really disqualify me or categorize me in a certain bucket that they would dismiss. Um, I really kind of downplayed some of the underlying biblical, you know, uh, proverbs that was the basis 
of the mission of your first 50 pitches yeah Yeah. exactly exactly and so i i really just felt convicted by god stop trying to convince them teach them you're the subject matter expert in the room for this business and so when i switched my mentality uh and i started leading honestly with proverbs 11 24 i started being a lot more bold about my experiences with you know church building and church planning the the amount of interest and momentum in the fundraising process from there accelerated like crazy. And I felt a little bit silly, right? But then I was like, okay, thank, thank you, God, for allowing me to go through that process. So if you can give us the 30-second elevator pitch of the 50 times rejected proposal <laughs> and then the 30-second elevator pitch for the one that won. I'd just love to see the difference. Is that is that fair or is that too hard to do on the spot? Uh, I, 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 could, I could give probably uh, a general idea, right? Yeah, uh, sure. Know, so let's, part, let's part, just see. Part of it is probably taking that trauma and putting it, <laughs> so I'm going to have to dig, dig <laughs> no, it a little bit. You're no, going to no, have no, to go no. to therapy after this interview. <laughs> I'm sorry, Vance. No, 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 I'm, I'm joking. So when I was initially pitching it, I was really emphasizing, hey, this is a massive market. Check this out. $450 billion is donated every year. If we just conserve a fraction of that, right? And we have a processing fee, then we become, you know, a billion dollar business. And, you know, all of those things are, are still true, you know, the fundamentals of that. But the reality is that doesn't make me different than anybody else. And it ultimately is not very inspiring or actually is uh, truly authentic to my heart behind why I'm building overflow, right? And, and they so, may have heard that pitch many times over, right? Yeah. So many people read the news every day. And if we can just capture 1% of the market, so many people work out every day. Exactly. So, so many people are on diets if we get half a percent of the market. <laughs> so how did it change? What was different? Yeah. It changed with basically what I told you about the origin story of Overflow, starting with that. That's it. So just starting just, with, yeah. Hey, we had sim- this problem. Guy wanted to give us some Facebook stock and we couldn't do it. Exactly. So starting very simply with the initial problem and how we approached the solution. And then talking about the future that we saw right? Based on our conviction in Proverbs eleven twenty four being fundamentally true and being a first principle in life. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. What does that actually mean? When somebody actually experiences giving, not of their time, but actually releasing finances, they experience an enlarged life. It actually literally releases a dopamine in your brain on the level of eating food and getting to shelter. And if we can actually unlock unprecedented amounts of generosity by providing a technology platform that makes it so easy to give whatever you have that's in your hand, whether it's stock, crypto, a used car, equity in your home, to causes that you care about, we fundamentally change the world, not just because we have unlocked resources for organizations that could use it, but because something fundamentally happens when somebody releases resources and money is not a master in their life anymore and they connect themselves to something beyond themselves. When I explained that and I taught that to some of the top investors in the Silicon Valley, they were just captivated. Most of my investors are secular. 
And so when, when I brought in the Bible, it's not necessarily they were subscribing to the Bible, but they believed in the first principle of what I was talking about. Hmm. Did you get to repitch to some of those first 50 or yeah, did you have to I start? Did. You did. I did. Wow. How did you get a second hearing? How did you get a second audience? That's hard for a lot of, first of all, everybody would have quit by now, but you didn't. Secondly, you're going back to people who said, get out of my office and you're coming back and say, but wait, but wait, there's more. How did that go, Vance? Sometimes when people see that you do what you say, it overcomes any hesitation that they had about you or your idea, right? And so people that I pitched first, right? Um, they passed respectfully and no, nobody was, you know, mean about it. They were just, you know, respect, respectfully passed. And uh, over the past six months, as I kept them updated, as I showed them that, hey, we're actually starting to get pilot customers, we're actually doing donations through the platform. As they saw the trajectory over the six months, they actually reached back out to me, giving me another shot saying, hey, this is actually really interesting that you're getting traction. It overcomes a lot of the initial hesitations that we had. Let's talk. Right. Yeah. Ah, so you kept them in the loop. You oh, said, 100%. you kept emailing them. You and you're 100%. very good at that. You're excellent Thank at communication. You. So yeah. you kept emailing them saying, Thanks so much for the audience, Mr. So and so or Mrs. So and so. And, you know, really appreciate it. Just want you to know I'm going to continue going with it. And then they started reaching back out to you. Okay. That's right. Well, that is a lesson in perseverance. That is a lesson <laughs> in not failing. So you got your initial round of funding. And That's then right. uh, tell us the next steps. Yeah. So we got our initial round of funding. And then July 2020, we officially launched the platform. We had a couple pilots under our belt. So we pretty, felt pretty confident about our platform. And when we launched, it just started taking off, Carrie. Mm -hmm. We started getting interest from Elevation Church, uh, you know, other churches like Hillsong, in the nonprofit space, Meals on Wheels, uh, our good friend Brett Hagler from New Story. Yeah, from right? New Story. That's right. And also big institutions like Stanford and NYC, as well as corporations like Twilio. And we just started serving uh, many of these organizations, facilitating generosity. And that continued to create echo chambers across the valley and, you know, really got, you know, other folks like Salesforce Ventures to help us facilitate another round of funding that's allowed this most recent acceleration of our growth. Okay, so that is a fascinating story. What I would love to do, though, is because we do have a lot of charitable, not-for-profit church leaders, as well as business leaders yeah. who probably want to give something, listening. Give us an idea of the state of the donation industry. I don't even know what to call yeah. it. Yeah. Atmosphere today. Like how much is cash? Mm -hmm. And then how much do you think could be released if there was an easy way to donate? stock if there was an easy way. Because more and more people, I mean, I'm certainly <laughs> not yet in that category, you know, but I, I know a number of people who have just decided they've done very well in life. They have more than they know what to do with. And right. they're signing the Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett pledge to give over half of their giving away in yep. their lifetime. I mean, the Green family has done that with Hobby Lobby. Wow. They're basically yes. saying this is just this is just a giving thing. And they've been very public about it. So I can imagine that there is a lot of money sitting in even small congregations that could be released in this kind of thing. What, what does the giving landscape look like right now? 
Yeah. So giving overall actually alluded to it earlier, $450 billion is given every single year, right? In America uh, alone. In America alone. And 33% of that actually goes to the local church. Wow. It, the, the, the church is the most generous category by far. In second place is education at 13%. Wow. Okay. So largely most of the giving is pioneered and led by Christians, which is amazing. Right. Yeah. Um, but most of be. that as it should be, right. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal and it inspires me. And so most of that though is currently in cash, right? Most of that 450 billion is from people's ACH debit credit check, right? Type of giving. And, you know, what's interesting is that that actually is a little bit backwards if you think about where wealth is actually held. So 90% of wealth is actually in non-cash assets. So if you think about it, the next wave, the next unlock of generosity is not going to come from a step function in people's checking and savings account, but it's to allow people to give directly from their portfolio, right? To allow them to give from their overflow. So let me put it another way, because I know a lot of church leaders listen to your podcast, Carrie. We have in our congregations, people that tithe, right? But we all know this, that most of the church don't have a conviction of a tithe yet, right? They're on a journey True. and that's okay. <laughs> um, the reality is people that don't tithe, their average gift to the church is $128. Okay. That's so it. it's not, it's, it's not a tithe. It's a tip. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and again, that, that's okay. Uh, but you know, it's a tip that is coming from their leftovers. Because when, when they're giving from their checking account, they're doing an auto, automatic calculation in their head. Okay. I have, you know, rent. I have cool school fees. I have groceries. Oh, it's Christmas time. I got to buy all these gifts. Oh, we're saving for that vacation. Okay. God, you know, okay. Church, here's $128. That's what I have. That's what I have left over. Right. Yeah. Uh, but if you actually flip the script, if you actually allow them not to give from their leftovers, but to give from their overflow, from their abundance, from their appreciated gains in their stock portfolio. Let's say they're in crypto and they've been blessed with some gains <laughs> in their crypto wallet. They have a different mentality. So our average donation through uh, overflow today is $9,500 in value. Wow. Right? So people are just disproportionately more generous when they realize they can give from this pocket. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, people have said boomers are into are about to do the biggest generational wealth transfer in history. A lot of that is going to kids and grandkids who can't afford yeah. houses. I mean, we're not going to talk about the jacked up housing market, but we could. And, you know, people, unfortunately, when you look back at the last two years, you know, we had that huge stock market crash right around the onset of the pandemic, and then it bounded back to the biggest market in history. And uh, the middle's disappearing. There were winners and there were losers. And a lot of people won in that one, but a lot of people lost. So yeah. when you think about income redistribution, when you think about generosity and all that kind of thing, what do you see as you look five to 10 years in the future as boomers who are now well into their 70s 
their estate start to transfer, et cetera. What is the potential for charities, not-for-profits, and even for businesses as you look ahead? It's massive. I think the number Boston College did a study, it's in the magnitude of like 18 trillion is wow. about to be transferred or is in the process right now of being transferred from boomers to the next generations like millennials. And wow. so what's going to happen is that a certain segment of people, not everybody, right? Cause you know, right, a right. lot of people are not going to be receiving that, <laughs> right? Yeah. But the people, the people that are, are going to be in a situation where they become resource unconstrained to live, you know, as much of the lifestyle that they want to live. And they are going to come to a head at some point of, you know, there's got to be more. There's got to be more to a fulfilling life than just being set for life, you know, uh, quote unquote. And so they're going to be looking to organizations like the church to find purpose and meeting. They're going to be searching it, you know, within their work and their career. And what people are going to run into, I fundamentally believe, is that generosity and giving and living a life beyond yourself is going to be one of the cornerstones to living a fulfilled and satisfied life here on this earth. And when that revelation starts to happen over the next decade, there is going to be an incredible explosion of opportunity for churches, nonprofits to facilitate this energy and to transfer it into incredible impact and solving real problems on the local and global scale. If you think about it, right, there are organizations like Charity Water that on some level has solved how to get clean water into places that need it. Mm -hmm. So why haven't we been able to fully solve this problem? There's a resource constraint. If we actually lift that resource constraint, if we could turn that $450 billion to a trillion dollars in a year, just imagine a lot of the problems we can actually eradicate, right? Well, and poverty is literally being not solved, but a lot of poverty has been eradicated in my lifetime. Like if you look at the stats between the 90s and today, there are so many more people who have a sustainable way of life, access to clean water, food and the basic necessities than they did even 20 years ago. That's right. That's right. So there's an abundance, right? It's not that we don't have the resources to solve these problems. We actually have enough resources to solve food insecurity because America alone throws away enough food to feed the whole world twice. So it's not a resource problem. It's a distribution allocation problem. And so we believe that if we remove friction from people being able to allocate and distribute, that's more aligned with their intent. We actually unlock a whole net new channel for resources. So that's a great vision. Walk us through how the technology is working now. And I know it's continuing to evolve probably as we speak, but if I want to donate $10,000 worth of some stock or crypto. Mm -hmm. How does that work? And we'll talk a little bit more more about crypto before we're done. But how does that work exactly? Yeah. So let's say you attend a church like Elevation Church. You would Mm -hmm. go to their giving page, right? To be part of maybe their year-end giving campaign. And you would actually see there today an opportunity to donate stock or crypto. That's powered by Overflow. So you click on donate or give stock. 
And then you, you know, um, authenticate via a code that we send to, let's say, your phone number. And Is then, that like two-factor authentication? Exactly, kind of yeah. exactly. Right. And so now when you're in, you can connect your brokerage account directly. So let's say that you have your stock in Charles Schwab. The same login and password that you use when you go to charlesschwab.com, you'd actually use within our web application oh, as well. that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. So then you log in and then once that's connected up, you don't have to connect it again. Um, we keep it a secure, persistent link to it, right? And now you can see your portfolio all in one place, right? Wow. And so you can see, oh, I have Facebook stock because I used to work at Facebook. I have Tesla stock because I bought Tesla stock two years ago as an investment. And I have all these appreciated gains. And if you know a little bit about you know tax efficiency, the best way to give is actually from your gains, we, we say give from your gains because you eliminate capital gains tax in those scenarios, right. right? And then when the church actually receives it and liquidates it, because they're a 501c3 tax-exempt organization, they actually don't need to pay those capital gains tax, which is beautiful because it goes towards oh. more impact. Yeah, yeah. So you're in the platform, you select the stock that you want to mm-hmm. give, and then you do a couple more steps. You give us your e-signature, and then when you submit it, we take care of the rest. No more, you know, headaches or, um, you know, weeks and months of process and paperwork that you need to do by yourself. Um, we do all the workflow automation on the back end for you. And in some cases, if it's a really large gift with you, right? We call it concierge level support. If there's any human interaction that's needed, we have a dedicated support team to make sure that they're with you every single step of the way. Wow. Um, how long would it take for, say, not a concierge level, but somebody who wants to give a few thousand dollars in stock uh, to $10,000 in stock? As you said before, it was fax machines, days, weeks, whatever. What is the process now? How long would it take as the app is yeah. developed? So the timeline actually is uh, dependent on the sending brokerage, but yeah. let me give you the range. No, but I mean for, for the user. Yeah. If I want to yeah, make the donation, exactly. is that taking me 10 minutes, 10 hours? Like how long is it going to oh, take me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it takes you probably five minutes to, um, at maximum to f- facilitate the initiation of the gift. And then wow. if you're using Charles Schwab, it'll be settled within 24 hours, like stock in the church's brokerage account. Wow. And then, so does the church then end up, or the charity or the receiving organization, they become stockholders or is it converted at disposition to dollars? Yeah. So it's mixed. So okay. uh, many churches uh, don't want to be in the business of managing our portfolio. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so they have the gifts immediately liquidated into cash yep. and then ACH'd into their checking account. Uh, but some churches, you know, hold tier one tech stock. There are certain nonprofits like UNICEF that wrote in the New York Times a couple of years ago that they're going to hold Bitcoin, right? Mm. In reserve. And that's worked out really well for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. so it's, it's a, it's a mix. My vision for the future is that nonprofits, churches, universities continue to take a more hybrid approach to portfolio management especially if they don't have immediate liquidity needs. Right. Uh, the reality is there's endowments like Harvard 
that have positioned themselves to be an organization that's going to be around for a while because they were really clever with how they managed their assets. Yeah. Right. And now they get to really think forward looking and they get to do a lot of cool things because they're no longer resource constrained and they're taking a portfolio approach. I would love to democratize that type of mentality across more and more high impact organizations because I believe it's going to encourage more innovation and unlock more opportunities. Mm, that's a really interesting uh, vision for the future. And I, di- I didn't know the answer to that question. Tell me about, um, tell me about the hurdles you had to overcome to get the technology <laughs> to where it is today. I'm sure that could be a couple hours right there. Oh, it could definitely be a couple hours and they're ongoing. Um, so here's, here's the biggest challenge, Carrie. The biggest challenge is that the brokerages actually do not have an incentive to send out stock for charitable purposes. Oh, wow. Why? Because the way that a brokerage or a wealth manager makes money, and that's not a bad thing. It's just what their, where their incentives are aligned is holding the assets because they take an assets under management and AUM fee, right? Um, anywhere from several basis points to 1%, 2%, it could be, right? Depending on what firm or company that you're working with. And so when assets leave where it's custodied, they're making less. So there's no incentive for the brokerage industry to innovate, to make it easier for people to donate stock and release uh, assets from the their custody and their ownership, right? Because their fees go down then. And so that is fundamentally the biggest uphill battle that we continue to have to navigate, right? And so we're aligning our incentives with what the donor wants to do and ultimately what the nonprofit is ready to receive. Hmm. So have you figured out how to incentivize them at all? (laughs) Not yet. Uh, no. one, one thing is that, you know, these features of being able to give a charitable stock donation is starting to become more and more common and starting to become more and more table stakes because there is a customer demand for it. And so because, you know, Charles Schwab customers, Fidelity customers, Vanguard customers want to do this, the brokerages have to support it. Right. Um, and so as, it's interesting, actually, the way to actually overcome this and to continue to align our incentives more with the brokerages is to continue to inspire the world to give. The more and more people that actually want to give, the more and more incentive it is for the brokerage to innovate their features to make this easier and easier over time. And I suppose for the self-directed investor, it's not a problem at all, right? If you don't use a brokerage, exactly. if, if you do it exactly. yourself, yeah. Okay, yeah. uh, let's talk a little bit about crypto because uh, we're getting into it a little bit on the podcast this year. It's been around for a long time. Uh, yeah. There's all kinds of views on it from it is evil incarnate to it's not going anywhere. Why are you guys getting so excited? It's just a fad. It's going to disappear to this is the future. It's the absolute future of money. I'd love to get your thoughts just on crypto as a whole, as a category and uh, why probably, you know, I'm sure there are some people who are listening who have theological, philosophical objections to even receiving crypto. You know, should we be receiving it, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, thoughts on crypto from somebody who has probably been very close to it. A lot of your friends are probably creating crypto, right? So let's talk about that for a little bit. Thoughts on crypto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it a fad? I definitely don't think it's a fad. I think it's okay. definitely here to stay. You know, in five years, are we only going to be transacting in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? I don't think so, right? right. I, I would fall somewhere in the middle. Here, here's mm. an example. How long has ACH, how long has online giving been around? And how many people in your church or your organization still give and check? Oh, yeah. Uh, che- che- checks are still here, right? I mean, it's not maybe the best way, but it's still here. <laughs> okay. Yep. Yep. You're right. No, very few. I think I'm not as in the weeds as I used to be. We still have a checkbook, though. And yeah. every once in a while, you know, we'll say, oh, should we write a check? I'm like, we're not that old. Like, no. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, we can do an so ACH. We can do a transfer. It's, yeah. it's definitely phasing out. But these legacy things, you know, last for a, a while is, is yeah. my point. And so my view on cryptocurrency, I think that there's two ways that cryptocurrency is viewed right now. And the other term that's being coined is Web3, really. Uh, One is crypto being a store of value. Uh, The the most famous case is Bitcoin, right? As As a hedge against inflation, right? And I think there's a lot of validity to that. Um, regardless of my views on the validity of it, I do believe that there's a new floor because of how many large institutional money has pretty much been underwriting it, right? So some of the biggest banks, Tesla, Square, uh, now Block, they've literally put a large stake in Bitcoin. And so there's some sort of floor to it being a store of value. Right. So, so you mean, in other words, it's not going to go below a certain level because of all correct. the institutional investment? Yeah. Correct. Right. Because there's it's hit a tipping point where there, there's enough institutional backing behind it that it's going to keep some level of value to it. Right. Um, is it, you know, justifying it being 60,000? I don't know. That's probably why I corrected a little bit. Maybe not today. Um, maybe in the future. But a lot of that is just based on people's continued belief in it. Right. Right. That's what that's what the story value. Well, ultimately, continue, that's what the money on. system is anyway. Exactly. Right? Like exactly. when you think about it, the dollar, um, that's what the dollar is. It's people's belief that this has value. Or when I show you, you know, here's here's an ACH that has so many digits associated with it. We're only transferring numbers at this point. There's no gold that moves. There's no actual money that shuffles out of an account. It's perceived value. Exactly, exactly. And so from a store of value standpoint, I definitely think it's here to stay as one of the places people choose to uh, hold value. The other thing and kind of more prevalent right now is the ut- the actual utility and potential applications on top of Web3, mm-hmm. right? And so the most recent case that has really been taking off is this idea of NFTs, right? Okay. And what's interesting about NFTs is the ability to- Non-fungible tokens, just be uninitiated. Okay, sorry about that. Go ahead. Exactly. No, yeah, this is good. The the interesting thing that NFTs has been able to to prove is that it can catalyze communities, right, around a certain thing. So it could be a JPEG, it could be- there's one around golf right now called LinksDAO, 
right? And it's essentially people saying, I want to be a member of this community. And because I have an NFT, I now have a right to all of the benefits that this community is going to continue to provide um, over time, right? And as that becomes more cachet, the value of that membership continues to go up, hmm. right? And so it's really interesting. I, you know, just find all of this amusing because a lot of the things that I think people are trying to get to, I actually believe the church has been doing for thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, 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 you know, uh, venture capitalists and, and founders talk about how community is the new moat. Community is the only thing that really differentiates your, your company or your organization from really lasting. I just immediately go to, this is exactly what Jesus has been saying <laughs> in relation to the church and why it's lasted for thousands of years, right? So, Yeah, and it's almost like when you look at DAOs, et cetera, it's almost which is decentralized autonomous organizations and the whole Web3 metaverse kind of idea. It feels like we're trying to escape the bad things that we've created here and create <laughs> yeah. a more idealized world somewhere out there. Not realizing, of course, that we're going to bring all of the problems that we created on Earth with us into the metaverse. And uh, But it is sort of that, that I think you could argue there's an eschatological, like a, a longing for heaven, a, a kind of, oh, we have to transcend this mess that we've made, which really is the Christian story, right? But that and doesn't stop Snoop Dogg from buying real estate on the metaverse. <laughs> exactly. So... You made such a profound point, Carrie. So if we snapped our fingers today, right? Or let's yeah. let's not do that. Let's just even say, let's say God answered our prayer today to solve all the world's problems right now. Let's mm. say there was no more, you know, world hunger. Let's say, you know, everybody had clean water. Let's say everybody had enough resources to no live one got a, a decent lifestyle. Right. Nobody mm -hmm. got murdered. Um, in 10 years. We're going to have people without clean water. We're going to have people that are hungry. Why? Because the reality is that the only thing that will sustainably change the world is actually the change that happens internally first. I agree. Right. And so that doesn't mean, you know, or abdicate our responsibility to try to solve these problems externally. Right. But that just means that when I talk about things like overflow, I'm trying to solve an external and an internal thing simultaneously. So that's why I always tell people, hey, this is really cool that we're facilitating tens of millions of dollars in donations to these organizations, and they're able to turn it into solving problems. But what's just as cool for me is that that person gave. Mm. Regardless of what they gave to, that person gave. Because I know what happens when you release resources, something happens intrinsically, something happens mentally. And all of a sudden, if your mindset changes, that's when we can actually sustainably change the world. Right. Mm. You know, that, that is, this is a fascinating conversation, Vance. So I want you to imagine, as you hinted at, five to 10 years down the road, what will currency look like and giving look like? in the world, you know, as we think about AI, as we think about crypto, as we think about Web3, the metaverse, DAOs, etc., NFTs, what would a reasonable, and probably a hybrid future, like Web2 is not going away, 
the yeah. internet as we know it today is probably not going to disappear. It's the same thing like money will probably, as we know it, backed by a central government, be around at least for a while longer um, if crypto doesn't take over everything. Or maybe crypto goes away. I, I'm with you. I'm, I wouldn't count on it going away entirely at this point yeah. um, because it powers so much of the blockchain, right? That's the currency that is accepted there. But, yep. you know, five to 10 years from now, what can a leader leading an average church, an average small business come to expect when it comes to the world of finance and uh, yeah, the world as we imagine it. Yeah. So in the next decade, what's going to happen is a transformation. Today, we're still very much a consumer-centric society. That's going to change to a giving economy, right? Mm. And so in a consumer-centric society, Amazon is king. And so literally just the other day, we remodeled our bathroom and by a click of a button, I could purchase a new bathtub, literally a bathtub. A and bathtub. it's at my, it's at my doorstep the next day Be- <laughs> because of, because of Amazon, right? Yeah. So in a consumer centric society, Amazon is king. But what we're going to do is we're going to create the Amazon for giving, mm. right? The Amazon for generosity. But what has to be the precursor to that? We have to layer a social currency and a social signal to giving. Giving has to become cool. Giving has to become aspirational. Giving has to become inspirational. And so one of the fundamental problems is the narrative. So for example, Forbes every single year publishes the richest people on the planet based on net worth. So that's just one example of how our society incentivizes people to keep, right? So if I want to be on that list, I shouldn't give. I should I should sign some sort of pledge so that I can give when I die, but I want to stay on the list, okay? <laughs> um, and so what's going to happen is people are already figuring this out, especially millennials and Gen Z. Hey, I actually, that doesn't do anything for me being on that list, right? We need to make a new list. The new list, I actually don't have anything wrong with a list that said how much I made in my lifetime, right? Mm. But there has to be a corresponding list next to how much I made to how much I gave. Wow. Okay. So now we're going to have this social signal where it's cool to be generous, to be prosperous, to be an entrepreneur, to be innovative, to do well in your career, but also to be generous, right? To, to convert some of that success and give it back and solve real problems, right? And that's going to lead to a fulfilling life. And so as we change that narrative, the blockchain um, and cryptocurrency and Web3, what that allows us to do is when people are giving through our platform, we're going to be able to exchange it. We actually created this already with a generosity token. Okay. Oh, wow. So for every single, um, let's say, for example, dollar value at the time that you gave it, d- dollar for dollar, you're going to be given a generosity token. The generosity token, you know, the best analogy I can come up with is like Delta Sky Miles points. Sure. Right. But forgiving. And so when you reach certain levels, we will, as overflow, actually match those, uh, those dollars and uh, multiply your giving towards whatever organization. And so we start to reward systematically through the blockchain right? We start to reward some of the most generous people on the planet. Proverbs eleven twenty four: the world of the generous gets larger and larger. 
And that person that is continually being generous, they don't have to only give from their checking and savings. They can give stock. They can give crypto. They can give a used car. They can give part of their wine collectible. They can give equity from their home. They could give anything, right? The same way you can buy anything on Amazon, you'll be able to give anything through overflow. And when we create that ecosystem and that giving economy, we believe that the future being more generous is a better future and more aligned future for our kids to what we actually intend it to be. That's a beautiful vision. I have to ask a really simple question. So when you say matching, normally what happens in sort of the current world is I've got a generous donor sitting over there in another room who doesn't want to be identified. Any gift that, you know, up to $100,000 will be matched if you give by X. Are you talking about that? Or are you actually talking about mining on the web? Or like, how are you going to match those? Because you have somebody who gives $10 million. How do you match that? Exactly. So it's not going to be a match dollar for dollar, but it's going to be a match to a certain amount based on your... Um, status as a, as a generous giver through the platform. So w- one simple example is that today, uh, overflow, we tithe off our revenue. Mm. So we actually give 10% back to our customers, right? right? But we do it in a really cool way. We divide up, um, 10% of our revenue across our employees and they get to choose which organizations they want to give it to. And they, they wow. write a letter and they write a letter back to the customer saying why you know, they chose them, right? So you think about this, we're going to be doing this at scale for all of our donors as well. And so we're going to be directing a portion of our revenue to be able to match to a certain amount. So let's say you give, you know, $100,000 based on your level with the generosity token, we might match up to $5,000, for example, right? Um, So that your gift is now $105,000 and that's $5,000 that, Otherwise, you know, wouldn't have been matched unless it was kind of incentivized through overflow. Do you worry theologically? I just got to ask it because I know there's going to be a bunch of comments <laughs> about like recognition. The right hand shouldn't know what the left hand is doing. And I must admit, I have airline status and it's pretty cool. I don't know whether I want donor status. Do you know what I mean? Is there, totally. is there any downside to that? Thoughts? Oh, 100%. So, you know, I think the Bible is really clear uh, about that in the heart posture behind giving and in no ways, you know, is our intent to create some sort of leaderboard that's publicly facing, right? Um, When I talk about kind of the Forbes list and narrative, that's more of just kind of the media uh, storyline where we need to shift some perspectives Mm. there. But in a, yeah, but in a functional standpoint, no, people don't, especially some of the most generous people in our church, they don't do it for recognition. They don't want to be on a leaderboard you know, they don't care to be known, which is beautiful, right? Yeah. Um, Their heart's in the right place. At the same time, while they might not be looking for a public platform, they do appreciate private recognition, mm. if that makes sense. And, and I do think appreciate... everybody who's led a charity knows that. Exactly. If you ignore they, the people yeah. who sacrificed, that's a problem. Exactly. And so, you know, our platform, creating a scalable way where people can do that you know, in a personalized manner, we believe is the right mix. So I fully agree with you. I think it does become weird when you try to gamify giving and that's not the intent behind it. It's more, how do we continue to unlock 
incentivize and encourage the same way that Facebook, you know, crafts or now Meta, right? Crafts their whole product, right? Around habit building. Hmm. How can we take some of those things in a healthy way to create good habits, right? I love the vision and the heart behind it, Vance. Got to ask you, so five years in the future, some of the leading churches, well, it started already, have metaverse campuses, online (laughs) church on Web2, social media presence, and in-person services, and decentralized gatherings, et cetera. It's going to be a different world. Financially, what does that look like? You've got crypto coming in from the metaverse. You've got uh, stock donations, like just paint any treasurers listening or uh, leaders listening who are like, wait, what should I get ready for? What does that look like from a giving standpoint five years from now? Yeah, you nailed it. The the treasurers, the CFOs, the executive pastors, the head of development, the the CFOs that that are listening to this, really, I would encourage you to either learn and educate yourself about these non-cash assets and how to receive them. Obviously, we exist to help you do that. But even outside of us, there's so much content online where you can get up to speed, at least on the basics and the fundamental principles around this movement, uh, because it's coming, right? Mm. <laughs> Whether people believe in it or not, it's, it's definitely coming. Actually, it's here. You know, we're facilitating tens of millions of dollars through our platform today um, to churches and nonprofits in the form of non-cash assets. And so if you are lagging uh, behind in enabling this for your givers and your supporters, you're fundamentally just going to be missing out on some potentially significant needle-moving, game-changing gifts, right? And so in addition to just getting versed on it, I would really encourage uh, leaders in the philanthropic space and in the church space to start thinking about how to staff for it. Mm. Because it's not just about the ability to communicate and facilitate these gifts and hopefully through partners like Overflow, but it's thinking through how do we actually effectively manage this going forward? What kind of skill set will you need for staffing in that area? Yeah, so let's just talk about the church space specifically. Typically, the CFO is not a traditional CFO. Right. In the church space, the CFO is the person that knows how to use a spreadsheet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. 100%. or, 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 Or the person that's most financially inclined within the organization, right? And so I I would just encourage it. Nothing wrong with that. I think, you know, especially in the church planning stage, you you do whatever you can to continue to to grow your church and to be scrappy. I love that. I, I live in that space. At the same time, I do think that we need to progress as a space to think a lot more seriously about providing, let's say it needs to remain that person, to providing the resources and the education or the investment into that person to pursue the education they need to level up in that role so that we can be a lot more sophisticated in the way that we think about and manage. Because this is already happening in the for-profit space. This is already happening in industry, right? And that's why we have iconic brands like Apple, you know, their ability to continue to last for decades, right? We want our churches to do the same. And so I think we need to 
think about that, how we staff it. Well, so if you're thinking about fintech or even online businesses or brick and mortar businesses that have a significant online presence, what are the degrees, skills that the finance department or the online commerce department, you know, in, 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 or even fintech organizations, financial technology organizations are hiring for? Are they looking for accountants? Are they looking for software engineers? Like wh- who are they hiring? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good question. You know, if I were to distill this to the first principle truth, um, here, really what the world has transitioned to is a world that really rewarded specialists. Yeah. Right. And people that specialized. And what the world is now rewarding is generalists. It's true. That is so right? true. And so yep. really what you're looking for is people that can think critically, that know how to problem solve, and that can that can have a broad array of perspective, right? And so as much as they know the function of sales, like the principles of how to sell, they understand software enough to know which software pairs best with that function, right? And so the the people that are being rewarded are the people that have a breadth of knowledge that can stitch a lot of things together because to our point earlier, automation is allowing us to not have to specialize in so many things because computers are actually becoming better at certain specialized functions than humans. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Okay. That's good. So you're really looking, and I would say somebody who's probably agile, somebody who is curious, someone who can pivot, someone who can think broadly and someone who's aware of trends rather than this is how I've done it for the last 40 years, you know, exactly. how I'm going to do it exactly. forever. Vance, exactly. this is fascinating. Uh, I'm very excited to see what you're doing. Uh, and I do think that this is an ushering in conversation of a mm. world that I barely knew existed. So thank you for <laughs> that. Um, tell us if people want to know more, where, th- where can they find you and where can they uh, learn more about Overflow? Absolutely. So if you want to learn more about Overflow, overflow overflow.co, overflow.co, overflow.co. And then I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. You can just search Vance Roush, V-A-N-C-E-R-O-U-S-H. Well, Vance, thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kerry. Well, uh, that is a little glimpse into the future. And, you know, I was saying to Vance, I think off mic, uh, I can't remember. I don't think this made it in the episode, but we were talking about pushback to ideas like crypto and the metaverse and everything. And, you know, here's one principle. We always tend to be opposed to things we don't understand. And the purpose of this series is simply to help us see what's going on. This is not so much about the future as the present. And I think when you're prepared as a leader, and I'm getting prepared too, to be honest with you, some of the ideas we're discussing in this mini future series, they challenge me too. It's like, wow, That is a lot of change coming down the pipe. And did we not just have two years of crazy change? Yes, we did. But anyway, uh, hey, I hope you find this helpful. I'm finding it helpful. And we are going to continue with this little series. Next episode, I've got Max Chafkin. He is the Bloomberg Business Week editor, and he has covered tech for years for Bloomberg and other outlets. 
And we talk about the unintended consequences of technology, how tech leaders wield real power, and the absence of theologians and philosophers in the emerging field of AI. That'll wrap up our little mini future series, not that we're going to abandon the uh, <laughs> the whole thing. Uh, we will come back to this again and again, but uh, here's an excerpt. Max, I mean, what do you think? Zero. <laughs> zero, zero philosophers. Zero philosophers. Theologians. I don't know. I hope, oh. I wish, I think it would be really good if there were a few. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably wrong, right? Uh, because well, um, you've done a deep there's dive. So, well, there's so much money, you know, sloshing around uh, tech companies that I think some of them like do have like chief philosophers and things like that. Although, although I'm not sure like how much, um, uh, sway they have. And like in the case of Tristan right. Harris, right? He was like, I think his job was like some digital ethics. ethicist. Yeah, he was yeah, the right? But like the whole point yeah. is no one listened to him. Uh, so, so there's, so the question, there's the question of like, are, do, are these people around? And I think they are. Um, and, and like when the rubber meets the road, uh, sorry about the metaphor, you know, do we listen mm. to them? And I think the answer um, right now is no, unfortunately. So that's next time on the podcast. I want to thank our partners, World Vision and Leader. You can join uh, World Vision, David Kinneman, Danielle Strickland, and others, Feb 15th, for a brand new webinar. You can go to worldvision.org slash carrypod. That's worldvision.org slash C-A-R-E-Y-P-O-D. And go to leader.com, L-E-A-D-R.com, and use the promo code carry and you will get 20% off your first year of their people development software. That's leadr.com. Use the code C-A-R-E-Y. You get 20% off. Uh, got a big, 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 big lineup coming up. We have Michael Bungay-Stanier, who I'm very excited about. Dave Hollis, Jenny Allen, Bob Goff. Uh, well, Daniel Pink is coming back on the podcast. Ann Voskamp, Levi Lusco, and so many more. Coming up on the show, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And remember, we have transcripts. We even have them for this episode. If you want to learn more about what Vance had to say, you can go to the transcripts. You can get them at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 472. That's where we kind of have everything related to the podcast in a much bigger world where we try to serve leaders, help leaders thrive in life and leadership. And you can find that over at kerryneuhoff.com. I have emails I send out regularly. This year is going to be a really big year. I can't tell you yet, but soon we have a really big initiative I would love all of you to get in on. It's going to be, well, I think it's game-changing. It's a huge, huge, huge turn for my company, and we think it's going to give us an opportunity to serve leaders at a level that we've never been able to help leaders before. So that's coming up soon. Uh, stay tuned. I'll tell you all about it. And thanks, man. Thanks for 20 million downloads. It was fun earlier this month to see uh, a lot of you sharing the Starbucks that we shared with you. Of course, when you share this episode and when you let people know and you leave a rating and review, you help other leaders find this podcast. So if you found that helpful, please do share. Please leave a rating and review. Thank you so much, everybody. I love that we get to do this. How is this even possible? But we get to do it, right? This is fun. And uh, we'll talk to you again next episode. And I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.